This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanik. Welcome back. I want to start by telling the story of a Buddhist monk. There was a Buddhist monk who taught at a school and one day the parents of one of his students, a female student, came to him and said, our daughter has informed us that you have impregnated her. She's about to deliver a child, and we expect you to take that child. Buddhist monk, you know, with wide eyes said, oh, is that so? The parents said, yes, that is so. We've also informed the abbot who runs the school, you know, who is effectively the principal of the school. We've informed the abbot, and the abbot will be dismissing you shortly. The Buddhist monk said, oh, is that so? They said, yes, that's so. Well, a week or two later, this young female student delivered her child and the parents came over, the parents of the young girl who delivered the child, that is, the the now grandparents, they came over with their grandchild, this student's child, and presented this child to the Buddhist monk and said, this child is your responsibility. The Buddhist monk, who had now been dismissed from his job, whose reputation was now in tatters, accepted the child and said, oh, is that so? This is the child. They said, yes, this is the child. And they left. The Buddhist monk did his best to care for this newborn, fed the newborn milk from the goat, cared for it every night, woke up to feed the child. He, of course, had become a pariah in this village. You know, he was the Buddhist monk who committed statutory rape with one of his students, and, you know, his life's in ruin. He's a pariah. He has a young child to take care of. No means of employment. You know, things are kind of tough. Well, about a year later, these parents of this girl, these people that had accused this Buddhist monk of this terrible crime, well, they came back, except this time they looked a little more humble, didn't have that accusatory glare in their eyes. They weren't full of righteous indignation. And they said, oh, um, turns out that our daughter has informed us that it was the boy who lives next door to us that had impregnated her. They were having a secret romance. She was embarrassed about this. She was embarrassed that she found herself pregnant, and she just couldn't bring herself to admit what she had done. And so in in desperation, she blamed it on you. The Buddhist monk raised his eyebrows, and his eyes widened a little bit. He said, oh, is that so? And they said, yes, that's so. He said, oh. And they said, well, and... Well, we'd like the baby back now because these two young lovebirds are going to get married and they'd like to raise this child. The Buddhist monk again raised his eyebrows and his eyes were wide. And the parents this time said, we know what you're going to say. You're going to say, is that so? And he said, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is that so? Nonetheless, the Buddhist monk went and retrieved the baby from the crib that he had fashioned for it and returned the child to its grandparents who had wrongfully accused him who had ruined his reputation. And they said, thank you. And he nodded, and that was that. Well, the abbot heard of this. The abbot who was running the school heard of this, that this monk had been wrongfully accused of this horrible act, came back to him and told him they'd like to reinstate him at the school. The Buddhist monk just said, well, you've guessed it. Is that so? This is a curious story. Puzzles people who hear it for the first time. I mean, it puzzles people who hear it for the 20th time. And just for the record, I, I told an embellished version of this story. If you look it up online, you'll see slightly different versions, and you'll see not only different versions, but many versions. 
but the basic elements of all stories are the same. This accused monk who submits, and regardless of the version, it, it puzzles people because it raises so many questions. Why didn't the monk merely declare his innocence? Why didn't the monk defend his honor, his reputation? Why did the monk allow himself to be abused and burdened by the parents of this dishonest girl? I mean, I mean, these parents who refused to kind of see what was what. I mean, they should have figured it out. That's often a reaction people have, too. The parents should have known that the girl was lying. I mean, they knew the girl, and they were not being honest with themselves any more than the girl was being honest with herself. Why did the monk take on all of those burdens? Why did he allow that merely to happen? Why did he submit to that when he didn't have to? All interesting questions. The answers often given tend to puzzle first-time listeners even more. Because the answer that's often given is, well, the Buddhist monk knew that had he not submitted to this injustice, he would have been worse off. The Buddhist monk knew had he defended his honor and his reputation, he would have been worse off than had he merely submitted to the burden of taking on the child and submitted to the loss of status, the loss of employment. So when people hear this story, they're puzzled by the story, and then they're even more puzzled by the answers, because the answers seem even more unbelievable than the story itself. They're, they're more incredulous about the answers than they are even about the events of the story, because that, that's just not what we do. And also, no one would begrudge, I mean, th- furthermore, no one would begrudge the monk had he stood up for himself and defended his reputation and refused to take the child on the grounds that he did not commit this terrible crime. In fact, by taking care of the child, it's almost as if he was admitting or tacitly confessing that he had done the things that he was accused of. Not only was he not defending himself, through his actions, it was as if he was admitting it. So certainly no one would have begrudged. I mean, if this were to happen in your town, you wouldn't begrudge someone who defended their honor. And once they took possession of the child, you would have thought, well, Of course he did it. Why else would he take, you know, that's the way we think. This idea that not defending yourself leaves you better off than defending yourself. This idea that submitting to an injustice leaves you better off than resisting it or fighting against it. That's that's a novel idea for most of us. Not just novel, it's probably impossible for most of us because there's a certain amount of knowledge about the way life works that is required in order to even understand the actions of the Buddhist monk, much less be able to do them yourself should you find yourself in a similar situation, which I hope none of you do. Though, I must say, the longer I live, the more I seem to believe that these type of experiences, analogous to the experience of the Buddhist monk, will come, will happen to just about all of us in one form or another. And we'll be faced with this choice of defending, fighting back, or submitting refusing to shoulder a burden that's been placed upon us unjustly, or merely accepting that burden with, without complaint, by the way. The longer I live, the more I'm starting to believe that these, quote, opportunities, close quote, will come to all of us. So that's why I want to talk about this story of the Buddhist monk. That's why I want to talk about the knowledge required to get through these type of opportunities. The first piece of understanding revolves around the idea of grace. And the postulate is this. You remember postulates from geometry class, don't you? Postulates are just things that are true, period. Cannot be proven. They are the fundamental building blocks of 
any sort of logical system, and geometry is that. It's a logical system. And so the postulates just are what they are what they are. Well, there's a postulate of life, perhaps one of the most, maybe the number one postulate, and that is grace comes to you as you give grace. And what is grace? Well, grace is knowing that people are not what they do. Grace is knowing that most people are acting under their own egos, their own delusions, their own misunderstandings. So what do I mean by this? Let's think back to the parents. They come to this Buddhist monk. They're told by their daughter who they have raised, who they know well, who they've seen hanging out with the neighbor boy. They've seen the look in their eyes as they've looked at each other. Well, this girl comes to them. They know her personality. They know maybe she has a penchant for exaggeration or for lying to get away with things. Maybe she's sneaky. They, I mean, they know, you know these things about your kids when you raise kids. You know everything about them. So these parents are sitting there, and this daughter who they know intimately comes to them and says, um, I'm pregnant, and it's because the monk at my school has lain with me. And for the parents, well, their first reaction, well, who knows what their first reaction is? I mean, so many reactions, but one of the reactions for sure is, holy cow, we're living in a small village in a Confucian society with high moral standards, and our teenage daughter is pregnant, and she's not married, and what is everybody going to think? And believe it or not, the parents, like a lot of parents do, like a lot of us do, one of their reactions was probably to think about their own status and their own reputation, their own standing in the community. You know, holy cow, my daughter's pregnant. What are all the neighbors going to think? We, we hate to admit that we have those type of reactions, but some of us do. And so it would have been easy for the parents to latch on for some sort of explanation that simultaneously saved their reputation, preserved their status, transferred the blame from themselves as bad parents or from their child as, a, as an immoral, wanton, sleazy girl who was sneaking out and having relations with the neighbor boy to transfer that blame to someone else who, who, could, who could solve all these problems about status and reputation. And, and so in that type of emotional stew, when the daughter offers up some sort of incredible explanation that the monk at the school had taken advantage of her and forced himself on her, well, it was, it was too perfect. It was too well, it was too great. It was, and so they just latched onto it. And then suddenly relief would replace this massive anxiety they were feeling about their own status and reputation. Suddenly relief that, oh, okay, we're, we're still going to be seen as pretty good parents. Oh, even better. Now we're going to be the victims of this horrible priest at the school. And our daughter is not just, not only is her virtue intact, but even better now, she'll be a victim and people will be able to sympathize with her. And Oh, this might even be a pretty good thing. And they're in this emotional state. They're being steamed up and boiled up in this emotional brew and this stew that's bubbling up inside them. And they grab their daughter and they march her over to the school and they confront the monk and they haven't thought through any of this. Well, Grace says in those sort of situations that these parents and this daughter are not those actions. Grace says, at least one form of grace, one type of grace, and I think there's a lot of types of grace, but grace in this context says that, that you forbear them, you forgive them, you allow them 
this venting. In fact, you even love them because deep down inside them, there is a being of light that is unencumbered by their worries about status and their worries about ego and their worries about reputation. And Grace says you realize you know, that's what Grace really is, a knowledge. Grace says you know that they're not their actions, particularly when the actions are odious, like accusing you of fathering a child and committing some horrible crime that you didn't commit. That's when grace is really tested. So the foundational principle that enabled the Buddhist monk to do what he did, to be what he was, was this. The foundational knowledge was an understanding of grace. And of course, not just an understanding of the principle itself, but an understanding that in order to receive grace, you must give grace. You have to give grace to get grace. In order for people to be able to overlook all the moronic, insane, selfish, ego-driven, hurtful, dumb, I mean, the list of pejorative adjectives goes on and on and on and on. And Grace says no matter what sort of insane, inaccurate, deluded behavior you engage in because you're lost in some sort of emotional stew driven by your ego and your desire for status or, or whatever it is, Grace says that you're not that person, that you're this being of light underneath, and grace will see you as that being underneath. Well, if you want people to do that to you, if you want to receive grace from others, be it people in your town or your family or your ward or from God or from Jesus, you, you've got to be willing to give that grace. And so the Buddhist monk understood grace and the corollary principle related to it that if you want to receive grace, you have to give grace. You know, I want people to give me a break when I act like a psychotic jerk. That, that's what I want. But in order to receive that, I have to be willing to, when someone else is acting like a psychotic jerk, even if it sucks me up and afflicts me with some burdens, to give grace to them. And so why did the Buddhist monk not defend himself? Why did he think it was better to not defend himself? Why did he consider himself or consider that he would be potentially worse off had he defended himself? Well, it's a principle of grace. And in order to receive grace, you need to be willing to give it. You, in other words, got to take the baby and let all the other stuff settle down the way it's going to settle down. Let others, and in this case, the parents of this schoolgirl and the schoolgirl, come to their senses as they need to come to their senses. Well, that's a tall order. That's a high demand, isn't it? I suppose. But it's related to a second fundamental postulate about life, I think, that enables the Buddhist monks of this world to do these heroic things, to take on these undeserved burdens, to give a little grace. And the second postulate is that everything that's happening to you is for your good, divinely organized. That there's a being who, who's aware of it all and is letting it happen for your good. And, and, you know, I've talked about this before on this podcast. And people just, there are a lot of people whenever I talk about all experience being good that just, they, they cringe. And they write me emails and they say, oh, they, you know, I'll tell you a lot of things that aren't good. This, 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 this in my life. And I'm not saying things aren't hard or that things aren't difficult or that it's heavy, or that some things aren't emotionally charged. But I am saying that experience is good. You know, we're here to get experience. We're here to learn and grow and to realize 
things about ourselves, about life and about God. And, and if you have that faith, well, when someone comes up and accuses you of something horrible and then presents you with a burden, in the case of the Buddhist monk, the burden of raising this child, it, it's important to understand the second postulate, which is all experience is good for your good, for the good of others. And it's all beautiful, and it's all going to work out. And that, that's, a, that's a hard thing for some people to believe. But of course, that's what's so beautiful about the end of the story. When the parents come back and take the child back, take their responsibility back, well, what's the reputation of the Buddhist monk then? Well, it's incredible. I mean, he, after this episode, was probably viewed as the, the most Zen, the most uber Buddha-like guy in the whole village. I mean... You know, what were people saying about him after this? Well, what an amazing guy. What was the price? Well, the price was that he got to raise and care for a young being, a young child for a while. Got to love that child and have that experience. Of course, in order for him to enjoy that experience, his, his head's got to be in the right place. He's got to be remembering these two, first two postulates. And he can't just, it's not just remembering. He, he needs to do more than just remember them. He has to just... They have to have been internalized in him. You know, his knowledge of those things need, needed to be unitive, which is, you know, beyond expression. He just knew it in his gut because he was so experienced with them. What, what I mean by unitive knowledge is it's just part of him. It's one with him. You know, like we have unitive knowledge, most of us anyways, I think just about everybody, of, of water. We just, we don't need to remember what water is. We, we just, we just know because we've been swimming, we've drank it, we've had showers, we've taken baths, we've been in the rain. I mean, everyone knows what water is. You don't need to remember it. And so likewise, for this priest to endure these accusations, to look at taking care of a child on his own with no employment as, a, as an opportunity, for him to be able to do that, his knowledge of these first two postulates, the one of grace and the one that all experience is good, postulates one and two, his understanding of those needed to be unitive with him. So he wasn't really remembering. You don't really remember those postulates, but you have to become one with them. And clearly he had, and that's what's so great about his repetitive use of the phrase, oh, is that so? That had become part of him. Now, at this juncture, there are a number of you who are listening who are probably thinking to yourself, well, this is all well and good, Jack, but I'm not a Buddhist. What does this have to do with me? I'm, I'm, I'm living in the Western Hemisphere. According to Heidegger, the milieu in which I was conditioned has nothing to do with this wacky Buddhist stuff. Why do you keep talking about this stuff? Well, it turns out that Jesus taught some of these principles too. The greatest three chapters in all of Scripture, in my view, are Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7 sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes referred to as the Beatitudes. In these three chapters, Jesus lays out the new way to be, to act, to find joy, happiness, peace. In chapter 6, he talks a little bit about prayer. He says something very interesting in chapter 6 about prayer. He says, you know, you can get up and give some elaborate prayer, referred to in New Testament language as vain repetitions, or much talking. You can get up and do a lot of talking, do a lot of vain repetitions in your prayer. And you can hope that that'll be an effective prayer. But according to Jesus, our fanciful language, our, our fanciful prayers, driven by who knows what, 
or our repetitive prayers, again, motivated by who knows what, don't really produce much because it turns out God knows what we need even before we begin to pray. And after Jesus taught this principle that God knows what you need even before you pray, which, by the way, that's a whole nother podcast. Maybe we'll do that podcast next time. But setting that aside for just a second, after Jesus teaches that God knows what you need even before you pray, he then teaches people, given that, given that God knows what you need before you pray, how should we pray? And then this is what Jesus teaches. And what he teaches is the Lord's Prayer. And people get hung up on the language, but the form is basically this, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, hey, hey God, you're pretty holy. We'd like to acknowledge your holiness. The second part of this form is thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So, you know, we'd like your plan to be executed, your plan to come to fruition. Give us this day our daily bread. And then here's the interesting part. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Two lines. But what does it sound like? It sounds like giving and receiving grace. Give us grace, in other words, as we give grace. Or help us become worthy of grace by enabling us to give grace. So it turns out it's not just the Buddhist monks who understand this principle. That it's a lot easier to receive grace, to enjoy grace, when you give grace. Maybe even the acts are the same. Maybe giving and receiving is the same thing. Likewise, it's not just the Buddhists and the Shurzad Shamanins of this world that try to live their lives as if everything is good, as if all experience is good. Jesus taught this as well and taught it in Matthew 6, in which Jesus asks his listeners, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? You couple this verse with the notion that God knows what you need before you even kneel to pray. Well, it starts to sound a lot like life is good. There's a point for everything. All experience is good. It's all going to work out. But for some reason, we don't want to believe that it's all going to work out. Yet, even in the same chapter, we read this. Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink. Nor yet for your body, what you should put on is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. I mean, Jesus is teaching that experience is good. Someone's watching over you. There's a plan. Relax. But for some reason, we don't want to believe this. We love carrying our own burdens. We love fighting against life, earning our keep justifying our blessings, it's almost as if we don't want to receive grace. And why would we not want to receive grace? Well, because when the parents of the crazy schoolgirl come to us, we want to be able to criticize them. We want to be able to play a victim. And not us, of course, but our egos, our baser selves, the natural man. However you want to think about that part of you, we love that part of us. We want to be driven by that part of us, because it gives us a sense of control, a false sense, I might add, a delusion that there's not a higher being that loves us, that cares for us, because that belief requires humility. That belief requires that we view everyone else in the same light, and maybe 
their bad behavior is just driven by their natural man, which in fact isn't them. And because it's just so easy to criticize other people for mistakes, for delusions, for sin, for wrong accusations, which of course takes the spotlight off of yourself. The Buddhist monk knew better. Jesus knew better and taught so on the Mount. And deep inside, I think we all know this. I think it's one of those truths, one of those fundamental postulates of life that we all just kind of know deep down whether we're willing to admit it or not. Something incredible happens to you, though, when you're able to give grace or forgive. Maybe that's another way of thinking about grace. And you start to receive grace and forgiveness. Something incredible happens to you when you start to think of everything happening in your life, all of your experiences as good. Because then you start to notice that every moment of your life has been maybe pretty good, even the terrible moments, because even they have been instructive and led to even better moments. These are such great principles and such terrific promises based and given in love, based and given through mercy. But for some reason, it's just hard for us in our ego-driven states to accept it. It's hard to believe that if you ask, you'll receive. It's hard to believe that if you seek, you'll find. That if you knock, it'll be open to you. It's hard to believe that it's that easy. It's much easier to judge. It's a lot more fun to pick out the moat from your brother's eye than it is to consider the beam in your own. It's a lot easier to point the finger and to complain. It's a lot easier to believe that that's how life should work. But deep down, I think everyone knows that that's not how life works. And if you don't know, if you don't believe that, don't worry. Life is long and it will teach you. Because all experience is good. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.